no matter who you are or whether you stumbled in those doors or you came sprinting in, we are all here because we celebrate God's faithfulness to us. And can I just be, I want to be honest as we get started here today because this is important. Sometimes it is difficult for us to see where God's faithfulness is. So as, as we get going into another part of this difficult story with Jacob, I want us to keep that in mind. That sometimes it's difficult even though we know that God is with us. It's hard for us to know exactly how God is with us. So I want to ask you, uh, what is the most powerful of promises? Is it the pinky swear? Which, you know, that is pretty powerful. When you lock pinkies with someone, look them in the eye and say, I promise I will do this thing. Perhaps it is the promise made on your mother's grave which is a problem if your mother is still alive. You know, let's, let's be straight about that. It's interesting that at different times, from the time we were children, in different situations, we may or may not trust someone based on a number of what are arbitrary criteria. I don't know if you've ever considered this. Um, did they make eye contact with us while they made the promise? Was the handshake firm? which I've had conversations with people where they have said, I don't trust that person. Why? Well, they had a soft handshake. It's like, oh, okay, well, let me go get one of those hand squeezer things, right, so that my hands can be strong. Uh, how did they phrase the promise? Did they seem like they meant it at the time? Why is it that we need qualifiers for us to take someone's word? Why is it that we need pinky promises or swearing on our mother's grave, or all of these other things? Well, it's probably because at some point in our history, someone has made a promise to us that they didn't keep. So therefore, when someone makes a promise to us, there are not-so-arbitrary criteria we run through. Has this person proven themselves to be trustworthy? Have have they followed through with the things that they say they were going to do? Do they have a history of not following through with the things they said they are going to do? And woe to the person who breaks a promise to us, whether it's to call us back at a certain time or to do something uh, nice for us or whatever it is, our trust can be really hard-earned. And it makes me think a little bit about what trust and promises and someone's word means in today's society. I'm not sure that it means as much as it perhaps used to mean. It seems to me that we as a society appreciate the idea of a promise, but at the same time, we have had so many promises broken that we have developed a sort of innate skepticism about someone who says, I promise I will. And I don't know if you've ever thought this, but sometimes when, when I hear that, no matter what kind of, you know, 
you know, circle it's in, I say, well, why do you feel like you have to promise? Does that mean that you mean this more than you mean other things? Dev always gets on me in my sermons for saying, I'm going to be honest with you. And he says, does that mean you're lying all the other time? To which I say, Dev, leave me alone. I had the microphone. I say what I want to say. When you have the microphone, you can say or not say whatever you want to say or not say. We see this happening in sort of all parts of our lives. Uh, Maybe it's a guarantee that a company gives to us or a service contract that doesn't do what we thought uh, it was going to do. I mean, how many of us trust companies to deal with us honestly or to follow through with whatever it is they've said? A lot of you are going, we're not looking for names here, by the way. Uh, Sometimes it seems that people are really not all that concerned with living up to the promises that they've made. And part of the problem that I think we see a lot today is we want to believe in promises, but we have trusted people who have made promises to us, but they have made promises to us that they cannot possibly deliver on. And I think we see this most clearly within the political sphere. And I just want to say right now, if you think that there is some individual person that can save our country from whatever you want to say we need to be saved from, you are wrong. Because there is no one person that can fix us. Except for Jesus. That's right, but he is not running for that office at this time. And what's interesting is that no matter which side you find yourself on, you are inevitably disappointed at some point in time over something that person does, over a promise that person breaks over who someone ultimately is. And for us, when we elect someone to an office, whether it be president or school board, we have certain expectations of them. And when they don't meet those expectations, which they inevitably will do at some point, we don't trust them anymore. But beyond that, we've seen things within our culture that we used to hold as sacred promises have less value today than they used to. For example, marriage. Marriage is an idea that was, you know, an institution that was once one of the most serious promises that you could make to someone else. But things have really changed today. Fewer and fewer people are getting married because they have decided that they don't need to get married. I'm committed to this person. Like, why should I Get married to them when I know we're going to be together forever. And before you want to jump in and say everything God says about marriage, you need to stop and listen to what they're saying. Because what they're saying is not so far out of left field. There is a logic to it that we need to appreciate before we just try to tell them this is what God says. But there is something about that we need to understand within this sphere is that fewer and fewer people are getting married because 
however they grew up or whatever they've seen, marriage just simply doesn't matter to them like it does to others. And that doesn't make them God-haters. It doesn't mean that they don't want to do what God wants them to do. It just means that institution and their experience is not that important. It's become increasingly easier for us as well to walk away from marriage. I mean, irreconcilable differences has been an excuse for divorce for years and years and years, right? What does it mean? Anything. (laughs) It can mean anything. We just can't get along. And so this needs to be dissolved. If, I mean, at least in my experience, I always have viewed marriage as the ultimate promise that you can make to someone. And if that no longer holds meaning to us as a culture or society, not saying that, again, that we shouldn't value it as a church. That's not what I'm saying. But what does it mean when even that isn't trusted as an institution with a lasting promise? What does it mean when we live in that sort of culture? It it makes me wonder, what can we utterly depend on? What can we rely on? What promise can we hold on to? Now, this is really relevant to us today because in the story that we're looking at, which again is a very messy story, it's a story involving a trustworthy God living in a relationship with untrustworthy people. How untrustworthy are they? They are, as far as we can tell through this story, the most untrustworthy people. Where all of these members of the family are working against one another. And God made a promise that Abraham's descendants would become a great nation. And we expect that God will uphold his promise. But at this point, if God decided that he was done with these people's shenanigans, would we blame him? No. Interesting. Why? Because ultimately we believe, and you might not have thought about this, that when we make a promise to someone, They must be worthy of that promise. Which means that even though we have made a promise, which might have nothing to do with even what they asked for, we expect them to treat us or to live or act in such a way that doesn't violate this unspoken contract that we have put ourselves in with them. So when we see God dealing with such dishonest and untrustworthy people, our reaction is to say, well, I wouldn't blame God. I mean, these are clearly not the people that God needs to work with. Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau have not acted like those who are worthy of the promises of God. That is just true. So what is God to do dealing with these untrustworthy people? I mean, we have seen these four 
characters act more like, you know, actors in a heist movie than we have seen them act like those who are the people of God. And even though they are the people of promise, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but God has been mostly absent from the narrative of Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau. I mean, he showed up in parts, but he has mostly been inactive, so we think. Isaac's family has moved independently and almost without reference to the God who holds their future. And I get frustrated because this is not the way it should go. Don't these morons understand what it is that they have in front of them? Can't they see how good God is? And the voice that speaks to me in my head you all have one, so don't pretend like you don't. Says, um, no, that's just the way it is, Bryce. But I'm still frustrated. This does not seem to be a story of faith, you see. It's not a story of people overcoming through the power of God. It's not a story about God establishing his people and them living up to his expectations. I don't even know what kind of story it is other than it's messy. Jacob, the taker of the birthright, thief of his brother's blessing, is on the run for his life because his brother literally is waiting for his father to die so that he can kill Jacob. He has no option but to try to run and find distant family with whom he might be able to live with for a while. This is the promise bearer of God. So he's on his way to his uncle Laban's house where he will work, hide out, and hopefully find a wife. And this is God's great story, plowing ahead. And on the way to Laban's, there's a journey that Jacob has to go through. They're not next door. So he finds himself traveling across the wilderness to get to his uncle's house, which is where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 28. So if you have your Bibles open up there, we'll first be in verses 10 through 15. <clears throat> Jacob left Beersheba, and sat out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Quick question, where is he? He's nowhere. It's a certain place, but a certain place to whom? It's basically saying he stopped part of the way there. And he lays down, and what does he do? He uses a rock for a pillow. What kind of shape is he in <laughs> at this point? Verse 12. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. This is Jacob's ladder. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, 
I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Okay. Even though the characters in these stories have not had the traits that we would have expected them to, we see something important here. God is always God. And we say that a lot. God is always God, and we need to let God be God. But this gives us a specific context where, church, God is God. And God is not going to stop being God in any way, shape, or form just because he's dealing with kind of stinky people. And that's a good thing. I, I hope you see that. He is going to be true to himself. It would be so easy to forget in just these short chapters that God was involved in the lives of these people. I mean, when you think about the narrative of Abraham versus the narrative of Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau, God is present everywhere in the Abraham narrative. It's, it's almost like Abraham stops what he's doing at times and just says, God, what do you think about this? And God tells him. And yet... We haven't seen him act this way in the story. And so, as the story has plowed on seemingly without him, it's easy to relegate him to some sort of side role or minor player status within this story. But within this episode, God boldly declares that he is present even if he has not been as visible as we, the readers, want him to be. Or... If we, the readers, have not seen him be present in this story like we think he should be. Maybe you've asked yourself, when is God going to take a hold of this thing and make some sort of definitive action, either for or against or something? But God lets the drama unfold on its own. And when he saw this opportunity to reinsert himself in the story, he did so in a dynamic way that reasserted his place as the one who is really writing this thing. And what we see here in the middle of nowhere is nothing short of a covenant renewal with Jacob. This is a big deal this is, that God has spoken to him in this place. And here's what's kind of interesting for us. It did not happen at a major benchmark or goal. It didn't occur at his birth or at some other significant milestone. In fact, it happened 
while Jacob was a fugitive in exile from his family, journeying to a future that he has no idea what it will contain. It was, he's, he's not the kind of person, nor is it the kind of situation where we would expect God to make a statement like this. It kind of doesn't fit. And yet he does. And what's so confusing to me is that it didn't occur at a place or time of any significance whatsoever. You know what the most significant thing about this timing and place is? Jacob was alone. That's it. He was alone. It it happened when he was on the way from one place to another. And like we already pointed out, we don't even know the name. In fact, the place does not have a name until God shows up there. This is not the promised land. This is a rest stop in the middle of the desert. And in fact, (laughs) it didn't even happen while Jacob was conscious. Dude's asleep. And God speaks to him in a dream. God appeared at a time and place where he was least expected. Jacob was far away from everything, uncertain about what was to come, in the middle of nowhere. And this speaks to us a little bit about the importance of the middle of nowhere. The importance of us being uncertain. The importance of us not really knowing where we're going or what's going to happen. The importance of being nowhere. That maybe as much as we might try to avoid those moments, church, that might be the place in the middle of nowhere that God speaks his promises to us. That's not how we want it to be. But that just might be the case with those whose lives are so messy that it takes everything coming to a screeching halt in order for us to see what God has. It tells us something about all of our planning and scheming, because after all, like Jacob, we are kind of schemers. All of our expectations of God and what he will do and where he will show up. We spend a lot of time in our lives trying to avoid the wilderness because we don't like the quiet. To be in the place where we think we should be instead. Where God is moving and dynamic and things are happening in our lives. But if we are never in the wilderness and we do not know the in-between places, We may not know where God is at all. I feel weird saying that. But it might be in those places that are in between that God finally is given the opportunity to say something to us that he might not have been able to before. 
which makes me look at Jacob's story slightly differently. Because when, before this moment, when could God have spoken so powerfully his promises to Jacob? And the answer is we don't know. It wasn't until all the scheming and planning, all the pieces had been moved around the board, and Jacob was finally helpless that God spoke to him. And as far as we know, this is the first time that God has spoken to Jacob. And what he said to Jacob was a lot like the promises that God had given to Abraham. He will have land, he will have descendants, the works. But God didn't leave it at that because there was something that God needed Jacob to know about who he is, about who he was in business with, about who was making the promise. And the first of the promises is a wonderful promise. He says, I will be with you. Now, can we just recognize that that promise means more in that exact moment than it would have at any other time in his life? Where he doesn't know where he is and he doesn't know what's going to happen. There's a ramp, a ladder, connecting heaven to earth. And on this ramp, there are angels, messengers from God, going back and forth. Why is this an important image at this moment in time? What does it say? It says that God is not far away. In fact, heaven is in relationship with the earth. And God's messengers are going back and forth, back and forth. And at the top of this ladder is who? Is God. God is at the top of this ladder. And it's God who speaks to Jacob. How earth-shattering must this have been to understand that God is right there? right there. Heaven is not so far away from earth. God is not somewhere watching, you know, eating popcorn and watching the movie of Jacob's life. God is right there. And Jacob had never seen it before. Never seen it before. And now before God says anything, he understands that God is in relationship with the world in a way that he never could have understood before. God is right there. He's not the God of his grandfather. You see, he's the God of right now. And in what should be a shocking thing to us, it's not because we know about all that God has done. But in what should be a shocking idea to us, God has committed to himself to this place, and not just to this place, but to this spot in the middle of nowhere, and not just that spot, but to this empty-handed fugitive on the run from his family with nothing in front of him. That is who God restates his promises 
too. Jacob was not alone. Guys, we didn't see God like we wanted him to, like we wanted to in the story, but God was there. And maybe it was that no one was looking for him. Maybe it's that life was so we can put whatever we want in there. But God has been there all along. And God says, I will be with you. And that promise that God will be with him echoes throughout the story of God and his people. When the prophet Jeremiah was told in Jeremiah chapter 1 that war was coming, God told Jeremiah that though things might seem hopeless, he did not need to be afraid because guess what? God was with him. So we told Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 43 verses 1 through 3. But now this is what the Lord said. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel. He's speaking not about Jacob. He's speaking about the nation at this point. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God is there. And when God is there, can I, it changes the story entirely. Changes the story entirely. And even in this case, where the people of God had gotten off track and they were besieged by enemies, God was still with them. And this is at the heart of the blessing that God gives to Jacob that no matter what situation he finds himself in, which he's been in some situations, God will be with him. The next promise is, is just as significant. God will not only be with him, but he will watch over him. There's nothing that is going to come your way that I will not see and I will not act. There are so many who believe that if there is a God, that he sits back on his throne and he passively watches humanity labor and struggle there's even a word for it it's called deism that god is up there and we are down here and he's almost watching us like we're ants in an ant farm but here god affirms that he is not a passive player he promises to be active to watch over jacob and to protect him and ultimately this is a huge moment in jacob's story that he now understands that God is watching over him and acting on his behalf. He did not sit idly by. And this is good news for Jacob, the homeless fugitive. That as he moves forward into the unknown, that God is going to watch over him. And finally, God will not stop being these things and more until it is all accomplished. There is nothing that will keep God from fulfilling his promises. There is nothing that will keep God from fulfilling his promises. There is nothing that will keep God from fulfilling his promises. There is nothing you can do that will keep God from fulfilling his promises. There is nothing that will happen to you 
that will keep God from fulfilling his promises. You can't mess up bad enough that you cannot come to God and he will keep his promises to you. This is great news for us and for the wandering and uncertain Jacob who received his father's blessing but at this point in his life had no idea how he was going to claim that blessing. His hunter brother stands between him and the blessing. And at this point, though he has received these things, he has to believe, there's no way I can claim my birthright. There's no way I can go back and be the head of this house. So God promised him restoration. You will come back. The promise is yours. It will be yours. Jacob did not have to settle for a new dream because of everything that had happened. He didn't have to make the best of a messed up situation. He didn't have to settle for an unblessed life because things had gone terribly wrong. Because you know what? Things are going to go terribly wrong. And what God has promised is not dependent upon everything in your life going right. It's not. And that is good news. Because I don't know if you've looked around lately, but things are not all going the way we would like them to. So God made this promise to him. You don't have to settle. You will receive my blessings as the one who I have called to be my people. And unsurprisingly, Jacob was changed by this encounter. I mean, how could he not be? Laying in the middle of nowhere with a rock as a pillow. So here's what he says, verses 16 through 22. When Jacob awoke from sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. I should have that tattooed across my forehead. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, a vow saying, If God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So Jacob's life had changed. He was no longer the cocky kid who was manipulating his brother. He was now a man running for his life. And it's a little bit ironic that this man who made his own way finally realized the way I've made is a disaster. But if God goes with me, things will be better. <laughs> Thank goodness, Jacob. We have been waiting for you to say this. So when God promised him these things, Jacob was at a point in his life where he really needed God to be God for him. He needed God to not just be a promise maker, but a promise keeper. 
And as God reiterated these promises to him, his eyes were opened for the first time to the greatness of the promises that were ahead of him. And he makes a statement which is so outrageous but remarkably true. Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. Somehow, between Abraham and Jacob, the presence of God, the promises of God became less real. We don't know why they weren't communicated in a more dynamic way. It's only like one generation. Maybe they were and Jacob just didn't get it. But whatever the reason, this moment became a major moment in the story of God creating his people because it's almost like the promises were being made for the first time. That's how new it is to Jacob. And Jacob realized for the first time that he had God on his side. And in true Jacob fashion, his acceptance of the promise was conditional. Isn't that funny? He can't totally stop being himself. If you will do these things for me, then you will be my God. And it's so us that what does he say? If you'll give me a place to go, if you will give me food to eat, if you will give me clothes to wear, if you will return me to my father's house, then you will be my God. And I want to reach in there and just shake him a little bit. Just a little bit. Like, did you hear what God just said to you? He will be with you always. He will watch for everything that's happening to you. He will never leave you. He will promise, he will be with you in all things, and he won't stop until this happens. And you're worried about food and clothes? I mean, I know you don't know where you're going, but come on. Heaven just spoke to you. Get it together, Jacob. But regardless, when Jacob realized he was a child of the promise, his life was changed forever. Because how blessed are the promises of God to those who finally know they desperately need him. Desperately. And by the way, that place of nothingness, of wandering, of using rock as a pillow became something new once God was there because he changed the name to Bethel, which means house of God. The in-between place the wilderness became the house of God. I can barely wrap my mind around that. And it's at this point, as we close here, that we need to reflect on just how much of our life is tied up in the promises of God and his ability, desire, and unrelenting push to fulfill those promises to us. To us. God's word to Jacob, I will not rest till this is done. And God promises those same things to us, that he will be with us, that he will watch over us, that he will bring us home, and he will not rest until it's done. And this changes us, you see. Because God has been there all along. And I, I, 
I want to be careful saying this. Just the fact that you didn't see him doesn't mean he wasn't there. And just because you don't know where he is, it doesn't mean he's gone. And just because we don't understand what's happening, it does not mean that God has abandoned us. Because God is not like us. He is a promise maker. And he is a promise keeper. And there are many times in our lives when we will feel like we are in the wilderness. There are times when we think that God is not there and we wonder how it is that we are supposed to receive his promises. We cannot see the future in front of us. That place is a holy place for me. I don't like it. But like Jacob, there is a revelation that comes on reflecting upon those times. And I don't know if you have ever been in a place where you did not know what the next moment was going to be. I have. I've been in the place where I didn't know who I was anymore. I've been in the place where I couldn't find my way out of a cardboard box. I've been in a place where I was using a rock as a pillow. And I did not know how to find the way in front of me. I could not. And no matter how many other people wanted me to find it or hoped I would or prayed for me, it wasn't there. Now I know that that was a holy place. And you know what? God didn't solve all of my problems after that. He didn't make my way smooth. He didn't make me feel better about everything. But God was there. And God waited for me to feel that again. He didn't rush me. He didn't pressure me. He just waited. And you know, after I came out of that place, people wanted to know, well, where was the moment where God fixed everything for you? When was the moment where all the relationships that were broken were restored? When was the moment where you so clearly knew your way forward? And I had to stand there and look at them and say, it didn't happen, and I don't know when it will, and isn't that wonderful? Because you know what? When you find yourself in that place, the illusion of thinking you're in control of your life fades away. And that seems so uncomfortable for us. But there is true freedom in it. Because you know what? God is there all along. 
And who God was for me after the wilderness was entirely different than who God was for me before. And without those moments, I never would have found him like I did. Do I hope you have that moment? No. Do I hope that you feel so alone that there is only God left? No. My hope is that unlike Jacob, we're smart enough to be able to find God right where we are and to not have to go into the wilderness. But church, don't curse it. It is not a cursed place. It is a holy place. And through that place and those moments, if you just focus on your next step, you will find that God was there all along. And you know what? <clears throat> Sorry. He wasn't what you thought he was going to be. He was more. And I'm so grateful, church, that he wasn't what I thought he was going to be because I needed him to be more. He is the God who is with us, who watches over us, who will bring us home, and he will not rest until that happens. Praise God that he keeps his promises in spite of everything else. Praise God that he saw fit to use this deceitful grasper and to change who he was because he promised he would. That can preach, friends.